Hey, everybody. Welcome to All There Is. I'm your host, Kelly Bargabas. You know this podcast is all about sharing the human experience, and today we have a real-life story, a real-life episode with a guest, Renee Farrell. Renee has two children, Charlotte and Callan, who live with children's interstitial lung disease, otherwise known as CHILD. You may or may not know that February has been Child Awareness Month, and again, CHILD is just a shortened acronym for Children's Interstitial Lung Disease. Renee is going to share her story today. Again, it's all about expanding our universe. It's about learning things that we don't know so that we can connect with each other in a better way, in an elevated way as we move throughout this world, as we move throughout this life. And I know that in talking with Renee today, I found out some things that I definitely hadn't thought of before, like the physical exertion that it takes to struggle to breathe makes it so children who are struggling to breathe fail to thrive and fail to gain weight and what that must be like. I never thought about that. I never thought about breathing being a a calorie burner, you know, and not in a good way, you know, that, that your body is working so hard that you're burning every calorie that you eat. And so it becomes very difficult to thrive in that scenario. I learned how much we take breathing for granted. Renee had some really great insight in how to respond when you see people and children out and about, out in the world, who may look like they have an illness. They may have plastic tubes in their nose that are connected to an oxygen tank. They may have a feeding tube. They may have, you know, whatever form of physical disability that you think you see with your eyes. It will be interesting for you to hear Renee's perspective on that. And that, you know, no matter what you see, the right thing to do is just to smile and say hi. And that children who live with illness like children's interstitial lung disease, they want the same things that your kids want. They have the same feelings, the same hopes, the same dreams, and they they want to make their life as full as possible. And I think you'll be able to tell pretty quickly that Renee, as a mom, definitely does whatever she can to make sure that her children are enjoying life to the fullest. And she herself is finding joy in the little things. So while it's insight into an illness that you may or may not know anything about, it's also just a good reminder on the human experience. So I hope you'll listen in and stay with it until the end. If you know of someone who might benefit from hearing about this disease, again, Renee's purpose and for all of those living with child Their goal with having an Awareness Month is, of course, to build awareness as a first step towards understanding and acceptance. And this is a very, I don't want to say it's a rare disease, but there's not much known about it. It's fairly new as an official diagnosis. I think maybe it's been around for about 20 years. So it's still very new. There's a lot that is not known about it. There is a website that is child foundation.org where you could get more information where you can find specialists in your area. My favorite quote from this conversation today it was when we were talking about how people approach her when she's out with her children and they see these plastic tubes connected to oxygen tanks and have a comment about it or they whisper or they stare and you know Renee says I look at my kids and I see pieces of plastic that are keeping them alive, period. 
That's what I see. And so that really shifted my thinking from one of, I think, we tend to go to a place of pity in our minds right away when we see someone that we think is struggling, especially physically, and we go to pity. And, you know, Renee's message is, no, we don't need your pity. We just need you to smile and say hi and move on. So really good lesson for me and hopefully for you too. Welcome, Renee. Thanks for joining me on All There Is. You know, on this podcast, you know, the whole genesis of it was to share the human experience. And I know you have, I was going to say maybe a unique human experience. Maybe it's not all that unique, but I think that's what you're going to educate us on tonight. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I love telling our story um, to to bring awareness around uh, what our family has been through. And there are four children's interstitial lung disease. February is Children's Interstitial Lung Disease Awareness Month, it right? Is. Did I did I get that right? And you have two children who are living with yeah, child is the acronym for it. It's a lot easier to say, <laughs> right? Child Awareness Month, so Children's Interstitial Lung Disease. But why don't you start by telling us your story? Tell us about your two kids and give us some insight and some backstory. So uh, I have three children. Um, My oldest does not have children's interstitial lung disease, Um, but my two youngest two, Callan, who is now 11, and Charlotte is nine. Um, When Callan was born, he was seemingly a very healthy baby. Um, At nine months old, I had to bring him for his nine-month checkup. It was not a big deal. It was just a routine thing. He was maybe a little congested. I thought he was teething or had a little bit of a cold starting. Um, but So I brought him that day in for his checkup and they um, listened to his lungs and they said, you know what, we, we hear breathing or wheezing and, and we don't like it. Um, so they checked his oxygen levels and his ox- oxygen levels were low. Um, not too bad. They were in the low nineties, which is an awful, um, but not certainly not normal. Uh, so they sent us home with a bunch of breathing treatments. We had to do every four hours. And they said, you know, if he's not better in the morning, we want you back here first thing in the morning. Uh, if he's not better, you're going to the hospital. So just be prepared for that. So we did what they told us to do, went back the next morning and he wasn't any better. He was in fact worse. So that started out our, our, our journey that that was the beginning of, of everything that they changed our lives forever. How long did it take you after that to actually get a diagnosis? So we went through many um, hospitalizations. Every time he was sick, we went to the hospital. We went locally to a hospital for about nine months after that. Um, and they just didn't really have any advice. They they didn't know what was going on. Um, they just kept saying, well, let's, let's wait and see how things go. And it, it, it took... <laughs> It, it took a lot, a lot of different appointments. And we finally had, had said, you know what, we actually, the, the physician's assistant that we saw frequently, she had finally said to us, it's time for you to move on. It's, you have to go somewhere else because we weren't getting what we needed. And so we went to Boston Children's Hospital and at, I think he was 18 months, we finally got a tentative diagnosis of children's interstitial lung disease, but they had thought it was a kind called um, neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy, which is supposed to be the best um, child form of child that you can get. Diagnosis didn't stick for long, um, but we do know that he does have now an unknown form of children's interstitial lung disease. Mm. So with that being said, it means that 
they don't know what caused it. They don't know uh, much about it. Um, so far, there's no other uh, uh, person, possibly a sister, uh, who has something like this, this type of child. So mm. uh, unknown diagnosis. Um, with children's interstitial lung disease, that's kind of like an umbrella term. So it's not just one disease. There's about at least 30 other lung diseases within this um, uh, this umbrella diagnosis. Mm. So and they, they are um, different in severity. So there are... Um, some are mild and, and moderate, severe, like there's a whole gamut and they all have different symptoms. I'm, I'm basically the same symptoms, but, you know, different levels of severity. And what are those characteristics that cause it to be under this umbrella? They have the same uh, work of breathing, um, low oxygen levels. With some of the forms of child, they have wheezing, um, failure to thrive. Um, those are just a few of the things that kind of throw them into that characteristic, but it's, it, um, you know, there's a lot of other things that can, can cause those things too. You know, uh, asthma can also cause a lot of those. So it just is where it affects in the lungs. Um, but a lot of the symptoms are, are very similar. And they call this child or children's interstitial lung disease, which denotes that only children have this disease. Does that mean that they grow out of it or are there adults living with this? as well. And it just becomes a different name. It really started being discovered in 2004. So I think mm. a lot of people knew they are seeing now that um, there were kids that who were maybe not diagnosed with it because it wasn't characterized. Are they're now, you know, they had it when they were kids, they weren't quite sure what it is, but now they're adults. There's a lot of uh, kids that yes, they are adults now and they do have ILD. Mm. I'm not sure if they still call it children's ILD. Mm. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, some people would like uh, the first diagnosis that Callan had, um, neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy, that's believed that kids can grow out of it. Um, there's a lot of surfactant deficiencies that um, kids are not going to grow out of. So they will be adults who have surfactant deficiency um, and different, you know, different other kinds of child. Wow. And just discovered in 2004. I believe it was 2003, 2004, yeah, somewhere in that area. Yeah. Which I'm sure just adds to uh, the medical community, you know, not having it on their radar, not knowing everything that you would hope that they would know about it. I'm sure you've probably run into that. And that's, that was the, in the beginning of our journey with Callan. Um, I, I specifically remember because we, we didn't know, we didn't know what was going on with Callan. We went to a whole bunch of doctors around us and they kept saying, oh, it's, it's reactive airway disease. It's, um, it might be asthma. It could be allergies. So we brought him to an allergist and in the notes, the allergist had said possible children's interstitial lung disease. So I went back to the pulmonologist and I said, is that a possibility? I, you know, I, I Googled it, of course. <laughs> um, I said, is this something, could it be that? And he said, oh no, absolutely not. That's not what it is. Mm. Um, it just goes to show that there's not enough known even by the medical professionals um, about children's interstitial lung disease. One of my goals is, is to raise awareness for not just the families, but also for the medical professionals. Yeah, for sure. And now Callan is 11 years old. So he and you and your family have been living with this for a very long time. What is Callan's health like now on a day-to-day -day basis? Callan is pretty stable at this point. Um, he, you know, we've seen a lot of improvement over the years. However, he was in the hospital um, last month. He had a cold. He had a virus, basically the common cold for you and I, um, but he wound up in the hospital. I think he was there for six days. Is he on oxygen all the time? 
Yes, he is. Um, so his sister, Charlotte, who's nine, um, she is also on oxygen. We were told by the doctors when, when we were pregnant for Charlotte, that the chances of having two children with interstitial lung disease was just not unheard of, but very, very rare. There wasn't a whole a lot of concern for it, but, but she also wound up having, um, has children's interstitial lung disease of, um, an unknown etiology. Mm. Uh, so them have oxygen. Um, one of the first things that we learned with Charlotte, because, um, we knew something was wrong. The doctors kept saying, you know, it's fine. It's fine. And I'm like, no, there's three. I, I knew there was something, um, you know, people would, would comment on her, her color, her complexion all the time that she looked blue and, um, you know, she had a purplish, purplish complexion. So we, we kind of fought for answers there. And one of the first things that we found out with her was that she aspirated. Um, one of the first tests that they ran was a swallow study and, um, she failed it miserably and <laughs> they admitted her right away. Uh, and put a feeding tube in. That kind of gave us a lot of insight on what was going on with Callan as well. We knew then to look for the aspiration. Um, she got her feeding tube at three months old, and he was only, he was seven years old when he finally got his, and it made a huge difference in his health. So Charlotte was three months old when she got her feeding tube. Is that when she was diagnosed with child as well? It was quite a while after that. Um, we have, both of the kids have been through biopsies, um, CAT scans, um, different testing. So it did take a little while. I think Charlotte, we did get the diagnosis after that um, within six months to a year. Tell me about the feeding tube and how that's related to the child and the lung disease. And you made a statement that the feeding tube made things so much better. So a lot of our, our lung kids have feeding tubes because of failure to thrive, um, meaning they don't gain weight uh, or, or they have a hard time gaining weight. And they, a, a lot of times they get the feeding tube just because it gives them the extra nutrients. It helps them, um, you know, put on the pounds a little bit, put on weight. When you're struggling to breathe, you're burning off those calories. So you're losing weight or you're not gaining, which is where the failure to thrive comes in a lot of cases. So a lot, a lot of our families have it for that reason. Callan was borderline failure to thrive, but the reason that they both have feeding tubes is because they aspirate when they drink. Um, meaning that the the liquid actually goes into their lungs. So Callan, when he got his feeding tube, we could tell a huge difference. And we think that um, because he was micro aspirating the whole time, it was just making him constantly sick. So whether the aspiration is causing the lung disease or the lung disease is causing the aspiration, we the doctors don't know. But we think giving his lungs a break from just having those liquids go in there, uh, you know, made a huge difference for him health wise. And we have, like I said, we've seen a, a big difference. Just now starting to trial thickened liquids within the last six months or so. And so far they're doing good with those. What about solid foods? They can have solid foods, um, but they cannot have anything. Ju well, we're just starting to trial juicy, but for, for several years, they have not been allowed to have things like um, fruits that are juicy or, um, you know, certain candies like lollipops, that kind of that turn it, they can't have ice cream because it's going to turn into liquid and, and go mm. in their lungs. Okay. So any liquid has to go through the feeding tube, but they can eat pizza and cheeseburgers and things like that normally. In our house. Yes. yes. Okay. Okay. I guess this is why getting information out is so important because I wouldn't even think of that, that struggling to breathe on a daily basis burns so many calories that these kids can't gain enough weight, you know, and like, it's not even in my 
I guess it's not even on my radar screen to think that that would burn that many calories. But hearing you talk about it and say it, of course, sometimes not breathing well, it's a workout. You know, breathing is something that most people take for granted, right? Because if you don't have any issues breathing, you don't have any underlying health problems, it just happens. Like your body just, you don't think about breathing all day long until it it is a struggle. So you don't think about it unless you encounter someone that makes you stop and think about it. Yeah. Your, Your body's supposed to do it and do it well on its own. Yeah. And, you know, even with the term feeding tube, like I hear the term feeding tube, And in my mind, I think just in my experience and what I know about feeding tubes, which is nothing, very little, but I I think of old people maybe reaching end of life or somebody who's terminally ill and reaching end of life, right? And their only option is a feeding tube to keep them alive. It sounds like Charlotte and Kalen, feeding tube is just part of their daily life, like it's part of their treatment protocol. Would you describe it like that? Absolutely. They wouldn't be where they are right now without their feeding tubes. But I just want to comment on what you had said with the feeding tubes. Generally, you think of, you know, elderly people or there are so many different reasons that children have feeding tubes. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, I also spent a lot of time trying to raise awareness about feeding tubes because people look at them and, you know, they can be look a little scary. You know, there's different kinds. Um, Charlotte used to have one that went down her nose and uh, you know, people stare a lot and that kind of thing. Now they go through right, you know, right through their stomachs, but they save the lives of so many kids. Um, it's amazing. It really is. So yeah. I think it's to kind of talk about these things. Um, so people realize. Charlotte and Kellen, they have their feeding tube on them always. It's a, they do. So they have their feeding tube goes right into their stomach, but they, you know, they, throughout the day, we call them feeds or let's do your milk, they, they get formula or water right through it. They have certain times in the day where they're hooked up for a half hour or an hour at a time. And then the rest of the time we unhook it, but the tubes does stay right in their belly. So. Okay. And the oxygen is on all the time. When the kids are doing well, they're allowed to have little breaks. We'll do like 15, 20 minute breaks at a time where they can go and kind of play outside. And they both really enjoy riding their bikes. I am a little bit too old to keep running alongside of the bike and they're <laughs> <laughs> too big and too fast for me. So for me to run alongside with the oxygen's not working anymore. Um, so they can have, you know, breaks here and there as long as their breathing is do- as well that day. That's a good segue into their school life. Do they attend public schools, regular classroom? What has that experience been like? We do attend regular school. During COVID, we chose to keep them home. The, the, you know, conversation with, with um, their father and I and, and the doctors, we all decided that was the best thing to keep them home. Um, but yeah, typically they go to school. They um, they have a one-to-one aide who carries their tanks for them. Um, we've tried using carts, but they're, it's, it's slow going <laughs> so that they could pull their own oxygen and be a little bit more independent. Um, but the aide carries their tank. They go to the classes like the other kids. They get, um, typically if they're good, they get a 15 minute or 20 minute break during gym class or recess so they can go play and, and, you know, just do typical kid things. Mm, Okay. When they can unhook their oxygen, they're able to run and play and their motor skills are all typical for their age group. And, um, Callan has a little bit more motor skill issues, uh, than, than Charlotte does a little bit of weakness, but you wouldn't know it by looking at him. We work Mm -hmm. through, you know, physical therapy, but if they didn't have their tubes on, if you didn't see their tubes, you wouldn't know that they were any different from the other kids. They Mm -hmm. run around, 
um, you know, they, they're just like the kids, the other kids. You mentioned, and this was something that I wanted to ask you about, you know, people staring and I'm sure the kids at school at this point are probably used to them, but I'm sure you encounter a lot of strangers who stare. What's that experience like? And what would you like to tell people about that? So yeah, we get that a lot, surprisingly. Um, to me, I think it's so, I mean, they're my kids. They're beautiful. Um, I see pieces of plastic that keep them healthy and keep them alive. I don't, on a day-to-day basis, I try not to think about it or I don't think about it. Um, but when we go out in public, obviously there are a lot of times, um, you know, that you, you have to think about it because people do stare. I know that there's curiosity. I mean, I, I was probably guilty of this before, you know, having two kids with medical needs. Um, there's a lot of curiosity and I don't, I don't mind that. I don't mind the curiosity. Um, I just, sometimes my kids look different, um, with their tubes. They have some limitations. I get that. Um, but I assure you they have the same feelings as, um, they have the same feelings, the hopes uh, and dreams that all the other kids do. Um, so I just ask, I guess that, um, next time that, you know, someone sees, sees a kids that looks a little different or anyone that looks a little bit different, realize that they see you staring. They see you whispering. Um, they're acutely aware that they look different. Um, uh, just smile, say hello, just like you would to anybody else. It's important. We try so hard to build their self-esteem at home. Um, it, it just hurts when we see other people affecting that when we are out in public. Yeah. And whispering and staring. I can imagine. I mean, it, it's never fun to feel like people are talking about you or um, making fun of you behind your back. Um, so that's that's really helpful. And you said something that struck me. If you see somebody with on an oxygen tank or a feeding tube or whatever, but you see something different. And our first thought might be pity, right? Like, oh, the poor, that poor kid. And, you know, like you just said, you just see plastic that helps your kids stay alive. Like we don't have to go to this place of, oh my God, I wonder what's wrong with him or her and that poor kid. It's, it, we, we immediately go to that state of pity. And I'm sure you and your children don't necessarily want other people's pity. Not at all. Um, you know, we, like I said, on a day-to-day basis, it's not, it's invisible to us. Mm. Unless we're going through something acute, it's invisible. We don't want people to feel sorry for us. We just, Mm -hmm. we want to go about our day. We want to, Mm -hmm. you know, go to the grocery store. Um, We want to go to the park and not have people stop us. I understand, again, the genuine curiosity. I do. And I get, for the most part, that people have the best intentions. Um, I can remember in the grocery store when the kids were little, I was stopped, I think, at least three times just running in the grocery store. And one woman, very sweet, kind woman. And again, I know she had the best intentions. She stopped me in the middle of the aisle and she said, can we please pray? Can I pray for your children? And we did, but it's, it's hard because I don't want to hurt their feelings, but at the end of the day, yes, we'll take all the prayers that you have, but we just want to get through the store too. And I don't, again, that probably sounds terrible, right? <laughs> Your prayers, but don't feel bad for us. We're, we're, we're okay. We're getting through. We just, yeah. someday we just need to go and do normal things. Yeah. And it's very intrusive. I mean, right. To have somebody stop you and offer to pray for you. It's a very nice sentiment, but at the same time, it's, it's intrusive. Like if you Especially want to pray for me, go pray for me, but 
Yeah. The, ki the kids would get nervous sometimes, you know, we, I bet, I bet people come up and, and, and not so nice of a tone and say, what's wrong with your children? Nothing's wrong with my children. Nothing yeah. at all. What kinds of conversations do you have with your kids about child, you know, especially as they get older, I would imagine and become more aware and try to process this. What we have a lot of conversations. It is getting a, a, a lot harder now that they are getting older. Um, I get a lot of, I hate my tube uh, or tubes. I want to be like the other kids. Why can't I go sleep over at so-and-so's house? Um, you know, we're going through a lot of that and a lot of questions about, am I going to have this for the rest of my life? Very, all of them, very hard questions. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, I don't know what's going to happen for the rest of their life because it's an unknown child. We don't know if it's going to get better. We don't know if it's going to get worse. We don't know if this is going to be it, the way we are forever. We have no idea. So I can't answer those questions. I do my best to say, you know, whatever happens, we are, you know, we're all in it together and we're going to go from there. And I mean, that's the best that I can do with those questions. Mm -hmm. uh, the questions about, you know, the tube or the, the statements about hating the tubes, if I'm going to be honest, some days I just look at them and I say, you know what? It sucks. I get it. I get it sucks. I, you know, I, mommy hates it too some days, but this is what we need to do to keep you healthy. And this is what we need to do to keep you out of the hospital. And we're going to do it. And and we're going to do it together. There's not much more you can say. It's, right. it's there's days it sucks. And I'm sure as they enter teenage years, right? Like where any kids get a little cranky and miserable, right? Like it's, it's normal for them to, to feel that way about what's happening in their lives. Um, going on in the house where I come in in the room, nobody has tubes. And I'm like, what's going on? What are you doing? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> it's starting. Oh my gosh. Strong willed. So it's going to be tough with her, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. These next few years are going to be interesting. So if you had to say, I'm sure there's a list, but what's been the hardest thing about living with child? I mean, there's, there's several things that are tough about it, but I, if I had to choose one for myself, it being the hardest for myself, it's the unknown. It, it's the unknown, not knowing, you know, what, what's going to happen in the future. I mean, none of us really know what our futures look like. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but just on a short-term basis, you know, like I said earlier, Callan and Charlotte have been stable. Callan got a cold and all of a sudden everything is up, up in the air and, um, you know, we're back in the hospital and back going through the same things that we've been going through for years. So I think that's, that's one of the hardest things is just, you never know what the next day is going to bring or what the mm -hmm. next illness is going to bring. And where have you found joy through all of this? Well, I think I find joy in the little things. I think not, not that they're trivial, trivial things to other parents, but I think that when you have been through so much with your kids and had, you know, all the hospital stays that we've had and, and the medical interventions that we've had and the therapies, um, not knowing what things are going to look like. I think that things like tying their shoe, um, their Callan just went to his first school dance. Charlotte's learning how to do horseback riding. Um, you know, coming home and saying they made a new friend. Those are the things that I really, that I find joy in because mm -hmm. those are the things that matter. You know, mm -hmm. they, uh, 
I don't know, they may seem small to other people and things that are just normal, but they're huge to us. It forces you to be more present. And, you know, those are the important things in life, right? So that's, that's great. What's the biggest misconception you think people have about children who live with illness like this? You know, I, I, I think it's hard. The biggest misconception that people have, they, I think that a lot of people think that, you know, the kids can't do a lot of things. Um, we try to make their lives full, uh, as full as we can. As I said before, they do have limitations, obviously, but they can still do a lot of things. My kids swim. Um, as I said, Charlotte's horseback riding. Um, we've, even when the kids were younger, they were able to play on soccer teams. Um, wasn't easy, but we made it work. You know, they can still enjoy a lot of the things that other kids can enjoy. Mm -hmm. And they do. And we, mm -hmm. we try to make it so that their, their lives are full and they're having these experiences. Yeah. That's awesome. They have all these tubes. It doesn't, doesn't hold them back. That's awesome. What do you want people to know? You know, February is child awareness month. What's important for people to know specifically about children's interstitial lung disease? What I want, I want people to learn the name children's interstitial lung disease. Again, other no, otherwise known as child or children's ILD. I want them to learn the term. I want them to educate themselves because I believe that there's a lot of kids out there that do have children's interstitial lung disease. And because there's not a whole lot still known about all of these diseases. So I think it's important for, for families to know if they have kids who have breathing issues um, as I said earlier, you know, we were told this is allergies, this is asthma, this is reactive airway disease. Just ask the questions, you know, um, know that there are options out there. Would they ask their regular doctor or would they have to go to a pulmonologist? Uh, so a lot of times the pulmonologists, regular pulmonologists aren't very well versed in, pulmon uh, in uh, children's interstitial lung disease either. Mm -hmm. um, there are several child centers uh, with specialists across the country. For instance, we go to Boston Children's Hospital. Um, the pulmonologist near us was not well versed in, in child. So we actually work with a team um, and it doesn't just include the child doctors. Our team includes um, cardiologists because... Mm -hmm. Uh, lung disease can affect the heart. It can cause pulmonary hypertension. Uh, so we have to, uh, the kids have to see pulmonologists all the time. We work with GI because of their feeding tubes. So it's this multidisciplinary uh, effort um, where everyone comes together to treat the child as a whole and not just the lung disease. There is any, um, you know, kind of thought that a child might have uh, ILD, then they should be diagnosed by a, a child professional, someone who who spe uh, specializes in the disease. Is there an organization that has a website that we can direct people to? Well, so there is the Child Foundation. They do have on their website that, you know, the different uh, specialists across the country. So you can definitely find specialists that way. Okay. I know it's been very enlightening for me to to hear about this. I had never heard of this disease before I met you. And it was such a pleasure to meet you. I guess I'll backtrack now for our listeners. You and I met last summer at a family reunion of all things. You know, I was going to that family reunion kind of not really expecting anything, right? I mean, it's a family reunion. I was like, it was an obligation. I was like, okay, I'll go. I don't know anybody, but you're my husband and he puts up with all my family. So, you know, I just kind of went into it with low expectations. And then you and I met and started talking and very quickly, I felt like, you know, we just kind of 
connected. And I, I could just see your, your warrior spirit and the way that you parent these kids and kind of lead them on this journey that they're on. Pretty amazing. Thank you. So I'm happy that we can get your story out, get the word out about child and and hopefully, you know, somebody listening to this, if nothing else, will just have awareness. Um, I do believe that, you know, awareness is the first step to getting understanding and acceptance from people. People just don't know what they don't know. And I think the more that we can get information out there to the masses about some of these things that you struggle with. I would just like to say, in case anyone does hear this podcast that has a child who has children's interstitial lung disease, my advice is, well, first, I want to say you are not alone. Um, I can remember standing in a room full of people in the beginning and feeling completely alone. And we had a great, great support system. But it's important to find your tribe. It's important to find others that are going through the same thing. Um, and there's lots of ways to do that. We have our lung family who, you know, uh, from across the country, some are from different countries. When Callan was in the hospital last month, I had so many people reach out just from our lung family. And um, I am very good friends with quite a few of them now. Um, and it's just important. It's important to find your people. It's important to have people that can relate to the same situations that you're going through um, and to be able to, to talk and be a support system for you. That was a great way to end it. So Thank you for coming and joining us today on All There Is. I really appreciate you, Renee, and uh, wish you and Callan and Charlotte and your husband just the best as you continue on this journey. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in today, everybody. I hope you learned something from this conversation. I know that I definitely did. You can go to child-foundation.org for more information on children's interstitial lung disease. If you're interested, you can go to Amazon and find my memoir, Chasing the Merry-Go-Round, Holding on to Hope and Home When the World Moves Too Fast. And finally, you can go to kellybargabus.com for all past episodes of this podcast. You can also find us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere podcasts can be found. But thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Renee appreciates it. And until we meet again, take care.